exclaims to Jesus, where else can I go, O Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to know, Peter says, we have come to know and to believe that you, O Jesus, are the Holy One of God. fact that even if for a moment during this song we were able to feel alignment between the words in our heart and rejoice, even for a moment in the reality of having only Christ and that being glorious, Lord, if we could, if we, if we resonated even for a moment during the song with those words, if we agreed with them, and Lord, you are to be praised for doing a work that is indescribably bigger than we can ask or imagine. For Lord, there is nothing in us born in sin that would rejoice in having you and you alone. Thank you, God, for the work you have done and are doing in the gospel to transform our hearts into being people who love you even as you, Lord, first loved us. Now, God, as we open our word, open your word, will you open our hearts and help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated, and if you'll open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 6, the Gospel of John in chapter 6. I wanted to take uh, a, a time out from progressing through Acts to talk today about a phenomenon that is sometimes referred to as Christian deconstruction. Christian deconstruction. And if you aren't familiar with that phrase, Christian deconstruction is used to describe something going on, a phenomenon going on right now uh, in which people are claiming to volitionally, by their own will, systematically dismantling their faith. And so this phrase, Christian deconstruction, is sort of the, the summary statement for what, what you saw Josh Harris do a year or two ago or what the singer from DC Talk did not that long ago, or so on and so forth. The news keeps coming out. Uh, probably there's an intention behind this. We'll talk about in a moment. News keeps coming out of this or that well-known Christian leader who has claimed to have re-examined the claims, the basics of his faith, and walked away deconstructed, no longer what you might describe as uh, orthodox or evangelical Christian, in fact, one of the hashtags, because, I mean, if you do anything today, you've got to have the right hashtag to go with it, and uh, one of the hashtags that you'll see in these statements is ex-evangelical, sort of evangelical, ex-evangelical, and so I want to talk about that today, um, and maybe just help us kind of build a biblical framework about what's going on there, and the first thing I'd like to kind of share with you as we get into the text is just that there are at least three uh, ways in which uh, this phrase, Christian deconstruction, there's a lot of distortions going on. So the first, the first thing I'd want you to know is that Christian decon deconstruction, the dismantling of, um, of one's beliefs, is really sort of, um, the, the gospel is the OG, the goat of, of deconstruction. So Everybody in this room, just about everybody in this room, is, an, is a descendant of an, of an ex-pagan ancestor, right? Like all of our people going back far enough worshiped trees. 
their worldview was built entirely around kind of a pluralistic, animistic kind of God, God is in this tree kind of a thing. Like all of us come from a similar spiritual heritage. And what happened to our ancestors' pagan faith? It was deconstructed. It was completely turned upside down. And what turned it upside down? the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whenever you hear in, in media discussions of deconstruction, of Christian deconstruction, it'd be good to remember that there's one thing that has turned more people's worldviews inside out and upside down than any other, and that's actually the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, so in many respects, the church is painted in the coverage of the issue of deconstruction as like, this old thing that's trying to keep up and look at all the people that are leaving and so on and so forth. And I just like to say, you know, people have been leaving their faiths for thousands of years because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I, I kind of played a, you know, imaginary uh, story in my uh, brain this week in which I thought of, you know, one of my Nordic ancestors talking to another one of my Nordic ancestors. And, you know, you've got Hagar and, and Ragnar, let's say. And Ragnar, <laughs> Ragnar, as to Hagar, hey, uh, Hagar, I noticed you weren't at the tree-worshiping ceremony last week. And, uh, and Hagar says, well, you're right. I wasn't at the tree-worshiping ceremony last week. I've really been rethinking everything about this whole tree-worshiping thing, and I've decided it's just a tree and not even that nice of a tree. And Ragnar's like, well, what do you mean? Are you telling me this tree that we've been worshiping for a thousand years is only a tree? It's like, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's right. And Ragnar's like, what's gotten into you, Hagar? Where did this all come from? And Hagar goes, well, you remember that Christian that came to town two, two months ago that we killed? Ragnar's like, yeah. He's like, I think he was right. Now, that's actually the story of Western civilization, Right? So if we're going to talk about deconstruction, we probably ought to talk about it holistically over a, seri over a long period of time and recognize, in fact, that even today, even today, there's a Muslim somewhere and a Mormon somewhere and a secular humanist somewhere whose entire worldview is being wrecked by God's work through the gospel. You don't hear about that in the news. Like, so that'll, that'll give us some clarity as we interact with things that are presented to us in the headlines there may be something there worth discussing, but often the way it's presented just on the front end lets us know, I think I'm supposed to be discouraged by this news, so let me think through kind of how God sees this. And the truth is, is that, you know, they're, they're the one thing that has disrupted and tore down more faith systems and belief systems and worldviews than any other thing, God is the original disruptor. The gospel is the original disruptor, and so forth. So, uh, this deconstruction thing runs both ways, and it still is running in both directions. Um, number two, deconstruction is what I believe to be an inaccurate word, and I, I kind of think of it as satanic gaslighting or satanic spin. Unfortunately, and fortunately, I guess, in some ways, I've had to walk with people who have been abused as children or as young adults, and uh, one of the things that is just uh, so painful to help people unpack when this happens is the, the, the abuser will often convince the abused that, that not only was the, it was a good thing that it happened, it wasn't a bad thing, that, that wasn't bad, no, that was a good thing that, that we just experienced. And then another layer of it is, um, and, and you wanted that to happen. And as I read the stories of deconstructed Christians 
I see so much deception going on in which they, they think that it was their idea, and it wasn't. And they think they had more control over the process than they did. The truth is, is that um, deconstruction is just the devil's way of, of deceiving victims into thinking it was their idea, which is kind of a classic abuser tactic. Deconstruction is actually destruction. I mean, that would be the right way to talk about it. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but every once in a while I get the creeps at something that hints at the glorification of suicide in, in, on TV or like uh, Don't Fear the Reaper, Blue Oyster Cult. Something ticks me off. There's always these, there's these moments in culture where suicide is somehow glorified. I just think that's, there's nothing glorious about it. It, it ruins lives. It, it, it leaves a hole in people's and people who are left behind. And the truth is, I think the devil's involved in it. And um, I think deconstruction needs to be seen as spiritual suicide and not glorified. Um, so we can use the term just because it's the term, but I think we would probably be wise to say when we say deconstruction, we mean the destruction of one's faith, often not simply volitional. Um, a classic definition that you'll hear when you study this topic is the systematic deconstruction the systematic taking apart of one's faith, as if what was happening all along was some person with perfect objectivity, you know, systematically, no, <laughs> people don't do that. They certainly don't do that about the things that closest to them. When you read the stories themselves, there's nothing systematic about what's going on here. Um, so that'd be my second concern, is that this term is actually, I think it's, it's the kind of thing an abusive person would tell an abused person I, it just is gross to me that people walk away from um, a spiritual suicide and think that it was their idea and that it's a good thing. Um, and then number three, deconstruction is not a new thing. Um, I think one of the reasons why it's being covered today is to make you think that it's a new thing, and I want you to see that it's not. And so that's our text. Uh, that's, that's a good way to swing into our text. And John 6, 66 after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, not a new thing. Actually built into the very gospel story that some will walk with him and then they will not. They will turn back. They will no longer work with him, walk with him. And so I think there are probably four things to try to accomplish in our discussion. The first one is to make sure that no one leaves here uh, uh, unduly discouraged over the phenomenon of Christian deconstruction. Uh, don't be discouraged by this in a deep kind of there's something wrong with Christianity sense at least. Uh, number two, I think it'd be really helpful if you begin to see some of the early warning signs of someone who might be in danger of deconstruction so that you can help them. Um, and number three is God has a purpose for people who fall away, a, a, a proclaiming purpose that he wants you to take away from. He wants you to learn something from people that fall away, and you know, I'll get to that. And then number four, would, you know, obviously want to do my best to help you to avoid any even accidentally walking into the deconstruction process. So let me just get to our text and show you two key contributors to deconstruction. John 6, 66 says, after this, Many of his disciples no longer walked with him. We are not left wondering why that occurred. We are given an explanation 
for why many people who were his disciples suddenly stopped being his disciples. That's what John 6 gives us. The first key, uh, the the first key contribution to deconstruction that shows up in our text is disappointing works of God. (sighs) Different ways to phrase this, disappointment in God, disappointment in the works of God, uh, whatever, but one of the key contributors is something that looks like disappointment in God. And we see this in our text, and to understand that, we have to start at the beginning of our text, which is John 6, the beginning of the chapter, is the feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 5,000 there is huge as it flows into kind of why these disciples eventually walked away. And just to kind of give you a quick overview of what's going on there, once the crowd realizes that the man who just filled them to the brim with uh, bread and fish, free bread and fish, by the way, they did not have to work for, once they realize that he has left, because Jesus does the miracle, and then he crosses the lake and goes to one of his home bases, uh, a city named Capernaum, and once they realize that he's left, they get in boats, and they go across the lake to find him there. And they find him there, and I think it's in verse 25, they're like, oh, Jesus, like, how long you been here? You know, sort of like, oh, imagine running into you here. Uh, Jesus cuts all through all that. Verse 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. This is Jesus's way of telling them, I'm not going to give you any more free bread. And I'm not giving you any more free bread because I want you to seek the thing behind the thing. I want you to seek the bread of life, which will never allow you to be hungry. And this dialogue goes back and forth throughout John 6 for quite some time. And the crowd even tries at one point to coax him in using his own logic to making bread. Because the conversation turns to Moses and manna and the provision of food in the wilderness and so on and so forth. And in verse 30, they actually tell, they actually tell him um, to Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Because Jesus is telling them, like, you need to stop worrying about free bread. You need to seek me. You need to believe in me. And, and here they're like, well, how can we believe in you unless you give us a sign? Here's a good idea of a sign. More bread, <laughs> you know. They say, uh, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, this is the sign. They, they, they have a recommendation for the sign he showed them. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. <laughs> That's one thing you could do right here. Um, as it is written, he gave them bread for heaven. So what we're seeing at this moment is this sort of idea of people want God to do a very particular thing for, the, for them. And he won't do it. And this is a key component of deconstruction. Jesus refuses to play their game, verses 32 through 33, and so on. So one of the chief causes of Christian deconstruction has to do with disappointment in the way that God is ordering a person's circumstances. What he's giving, what he's not giving, what he's taking away, and so on and so forth. So as over the past month, I did this kind of deep dive into all of these Christian deconstruction stories. And don't worry, I like, I like made a, a, a circle of holy water to, you know, prevent the, you know, I held a, I held a crucifix up as I watched the, 
Um, garlic, the whole deal. Now, as I made a deep dive into these stories, one of the trends that I noticed is that on the front end of these stories that are presented primarily to be about intellectual misgivings with the faith, there is some, often, often, some life circumstance that has gone wrong for them. And so um, one man began to deconstruct as he watched his godly mother who loved Jesus die a painful death from cancer. And that was the impetus. And then down the road, he started finding intellectual kind of ways of talking about this. But the impetus was a disappointment in what God did not do for him. Namely, keep his mom from suffering the way she did. So one of the key components to deconstruction is disappointed in what God has or has not done. Um, another woman wound up right, right, later writing a book called, you know, something like Jesus, the Feminist. She began her deconstruction from just simple evangelical faith after miscarriage. And, you know, for her in that moment, it was God has not done something for me that I wanted him to do. I'm disappointed in the circumstances that God has brought into my life. And a great number of deconstructions happen after church members discover that their pastor was secretly engaged in some sin, so on and so forth. Again, what's going on there? A disappointment that God would let that happen. Let that happen to them. In all of these stories, God is doing something, right? In all of these stories, God is doing the same thing he's doing in, the, the G, in this story in John 6. He's withholding something to give them the thing behind the thing, namely himself. He's, he's withholding the healthy birth of a child. He's withholding the healing of a loved one. He's even withholding uh, godly leadership sometimes. All, he's, he withholds good parenting sometimes. Everything he withholds, is aimed at keeping you focused on the thing behind the thing, the God behind the gifts. And so when Jesus tells these folks, no, no bread, no bread anymore. You can go work, get a job, get some bread. You need to seek me with the same sincerity that you've been seeking the bread. This is a key parting point, a key fork in the road between those who have a desire for him versus those who merely perhaps even to their own surprise, only have a desire for his gifts. Now, the truth is, is that this is extremely relevant because there's not a single person in this room who will not be disappointed with God at one point or another. It, here's the crazy thing. One way you could summarize the entire gospel story in a couple sentences would be this. God came to earth and disappointed everyone. That's actually one way of describing the gospel story. I would put the word temporarily there, right? God came to earth and temporarily disappointed everyone. Why? Why was everyone temporarily disappointed? Basically, because everyone was more interested in his stuff than him. And he, when he came to earth, he came with his heart, and he didn't come as a servant to do what you command, he, he came as a servant to give you what you really needed. So what's very interesting is what's the, what's the hitch? Like, why did God come to earth and everyone wound up disappoint, be, being disappointed? And here's the hitch. Here's the, the problem. 
Because when God came to earth, he came with a sincere interest in giving himself. And it's the only thing we really didn't want. Bread would have been fine. Right? A better political system would have been fine. The only thing we re- there's only one thing. Like, he could have given us a lot of things, and we well would have been like, you can stay. You're cool. The one thing he wants to give that we really didn't want, that we had to have our hearts transformed to make us want, is the one thing he was most interested in giving, and that was himself. Okay, so I think it's wise when we talk about deconstruction to understand, don't get caught up sometimes in what people give as explanations. I'm not saying disbelieve them. I'm saying have grace for folks who just are not prepared, perhaps by the way they were even taught in church, who are simply not prepared for a God that tells them no. This can be a very shaking thing for someone who is not at all prepared for this idea that God would dare do a thing like this, that he would dare withhold something to make up, to give him himself. But of course, God takes medicine, right? That's what the cross is. Jesus experiences separation, the withholding of the one thing he valued most to give himself to everyone else. So when people begin to struggle with deconstruction, I think it's really easy to kind of get a little ornery with them. It's like, you know, two things. One, maybe they had no theological preparation for the idea that God would do this because there are a whole lot of preachers with a lot more people in their sanctuary than I have right now, by the way, who tell people exactly the opposite. That God is not a God who says no. So there's a lot of people out there who just don't know that God says no. But also, let's be, let's be humble and compassionate and kind to these people because I guarantee you, I won't, there's, there's something God could take from you that would cause you to wonder. It's, it's all right there. The recipe is in all of us. And we'll talk about why it doesn't go into full-blown deconstruction later on. So uh, that's, that's one thought that... that one of the key contributions to deconstruction is just disappointment in God. Second one is diff- the difficult words of God. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This, the Greek there would be, this is an offensive saying. Who can listen to it? A second cause of deconstruction has to do with the imperfect compatibility of God's word and the culture's sensibilities. So what we learned last week was that God's word has some compatibility with the culture's sensibilities. Some of God's word has a self-evident majesty to it, and some of Jesus' teachings seem to be almost nearly universally accepted, though perhaps not universally applied, right? But there are things that God says, that Jesus says, that are just offensive to our cultural sensibilities. And this appears to be the second cause of these deconstruction stories. The one, I think they're often both of these, by the way, uh, some massively difficult circumstances entered into their life. They find disappointment in God. Two, something that God has said really rubs them the wrong way. Now, what was the thing that Jesus said here that really rubbed them the wrong way? Well, from verses 53 through 58, which we'll read during communion, 
Jesus began telling people that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he says it over and over again in those five verses. It's not a (laughs) one-off. It's almost as if he can read their pulse and he knows this is really triggering them. And he just goes over and over and over. He says it over and over and over again. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Okay, that particular statement bore particular offense to these particular people. So Jesus taught, for instance, that marriage involved a man and a woman. And to this culture that was hearing that that Jesus say that, that bore no offense, right? Jesus taught that God created the world. And to that culture, those words bore no offense when he started talking about eating and drinking blood and human flesh, that kind of language is deeply offensive because these people's entire belief system was intertwined with strict dietary rules, one of which was don't eat blood, don't drink blood and don't eat flesh. So Jesus had, and this is going to happen to every one of us, Jesus had found this particular place where his words and the people's cultural sensitivities crashed. And so the one thing is sort of like my expectations for Jesus in my circumstances, right? And my disappointment with him not fulfilling my expectations. Now this thing is my expectation for Jesus to be compliant with my cultural, culturally motivated values, my culturally informed values. And here Jesus is like, nope, nope. This is, oh, by the way, This is intentional from Jesus. Jesus doesn't wander into accidentally uh, uh, offensive things. It might be good to rethink some of our positions on the use of offensive language considering this passage in particular. Because Jesus said it to provoke with the intention of provoking. So in this particular culture, the one in the text, that was the line. But that's probably not the line. To us, it seems gross until we grasp the metaphor of it, and then we're fine. We're used to thinking in metaphors. But Jesus has said many other things that turn people off and turn people away. Jesus openly praised hierarchy. Jesus openly praised submission. Jesus condemned divorce in any circumstance except adultery and abandonment, and this one was hard on the first century hearers as well. In other words... Just as sure as God's going to allow some circumstances to come into your life that cause you to be disappointed in him, I guarantee you something's going to come through his word that's going to offend you. You're going to find some of God's deeds more disappointing than others, and you're going to find some of God's words more difficult than others. And these appear to be key contributors to what winds up being deconstruction. Next thing we want to see is, well, why did the 12 remain? After verse 66 and verse 67, everybody kind of walks away, and Jesus turns to the disciples, and he says in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Now, I think it's really important that just before we move on to Peter's answer, which is glorious, to understand that in this moment, all of these disciples, the ones who stayed and the ones who remained, the ones who left, they all have the same things in common at the one, one level. They've all been disappointed with God. They all find what Jesus just said to be difficult. Nobody was giving high fives after Jesus did the whole eat my flesh thing. You know, everybody was like, 
right? And that's why, that's why Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter's response is not, and I think this is just so encouraging. Peter's response is, are you kidding me? We love it here. <laughs> um, are you kidding me? We love it here. No, his response is, I don't really have anywhere else to go. <laughs> And I want you to be encouraged by that. Somebody came to my house the night because like, they didn't have anywhere else to go. It's like, okay, <laughs> hang out with me. Um, I want you to be encouraged by that because often we present faith, the, 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 the mountaintop of faith as being this sincere and ardent love for Jesus. And sometimes you won't have that. All you'll have is, I don't have anywhere else to go. And that's really good considering the alternative. Just even being at the position of, I'm not crazy about this relationship with you right now, Lord, but I know well enough to know the grass is not even existent anywhere else, <laughs> let alone greener. So I love Peter's kind of frank response. Where else should we go? And then he says some beautifully faithful things that we want to look at. Lord, to whom shall we go? This is verse 68 and 69. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So now we kind of shift, because before verse 66, we're asking what causes deconstruction, and after verse 66, we're like, what keeps us from deconstructing? So now we kind of shift into the positive and say, what's the kind of things that can keep us from falling into this, uh, this spiritual destruction? And I could talk about this for hours, and I, we're, our time is wrapping up, and I just want to give you three kind, of, three kind of broad things that is really massively contributing to Peter not wanting to go anywhere, and then I'll give you the final point that is the main reason. Okay, the first one is this. What's keeping Peter from walking away? Peter's goal is eternal life. These are very important. I think the, the causes for deconstruction are pretty self-evident. I don't necessarily know that the things that keep you from deconstructing are as obvious. This is huge. Peter's goal is eternal life. Um, I have a pastor friend who just finished teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and this guy's a, a serious student. He really does the work to understand the text and so on and so forth. And I have never done a deep you know, dive into Ecclesiastes like at that level. And I said to my, my theory on Ecclesiastes, you tell me if I'm right or wrong, my theory on Ecclesiastes is that it's sort of like what life feels like when you don't believe in heaven. And he said, yeah, that's, in his studies, he said the phrase, under the sun. It's an intellectual, it's a thought experiment. The word preacher in Ecclesiastes is just provoke, provocateur. It's an experiment run without eternity. And the consequence of the experiment run where there is only one reality and that is under the sun, under just this life alone, is that it's all vanity. And none of it makes any sense. One of the things that kept Peter uh, was he actually believed in heaven and hell. Like he, he, he wanted eternal life, which means he had categories for eternity and they mattered to him, and he, he believed in the immortality of the soul, and he believed that this life is really just a brief staging ground for the one to come. And what we see when we really think about it is, is that when heaven and hell are diminished in our sight, 
we become kind of spiritual anemic people, spiritually anemic people. The vitality of this, the thing that makes so much of this make sense, it all is, it all is diminished when heaven and hell are diminished. We start making decisions on this life alone. We start judging God in the circumstances of today by this life alone, and we become even more disappointed in him. We start judging his words by, are these words gonna help me today or are they gonna make my life worse today? So one of the things that I think it's easy to miss is that Peter is really concerned about eternal life. He wants to go to heaven when he dies. And he has decided that Jesus uniquely has the words that will get him there. Um, it is hugely consequential that you do not easily let go of certainty regarding heaven and hell. It is hugely consequential to your faith that you do not let go of that certainty. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about the resurrection, he says that Christianity without the resurrection makes Christians the most pitiable people in the world. So Christianity actually doesn't work without eternity. So a lot of times the deconstruction that happens when people that, that people aren't even identifying yet is they start to get a slippery grip on the realities of eternity. They, 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 they've deconstructed heaven to be this vapor kind of thing. They don't realize the tangibility and the, 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 the creational goodness of eternal heaven, and they've done the same to hell and so long before they've deconstructed their faith, a lot of times they've deconstructed their views of eternity. And I think that Peter is just basically a guy who wants to go to heaven. And it really seems to him that Jesus has got the best roadmap. Um, he actually says not just the best, the only roadmap. You alone have the words. I uh, can't cover all of what's going on here, but another one would just be Peter has a respect for the word of God. Uh, he clearly doesn't understand all of it, and he also does not like some of it. But he believes that his entrance into eternity is going to have a lot to do with listening to the word of God. And one of the cool things to see here when you think about it is, is that Peter's respect for the word actually predates his relationship with Jesus. What I mean by that is, is in verse 68, he says, you are the holy one of God. That's something he learned well before he met Jesus, this idea of the Messiah. Peter is an Old Testament guy. He respects the Old Testament scriptures. He is a word guy, and his word guyness makes Jesus precious to him because he identifies in Jesus that Jesus is both the word made flesh and also the subject and the object of all of the word. So one of the things that Peter's uh, doing even just totally accidentally is he's just a Bible guy. He, 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 he believes not only in eternity, but he believes that the key to eternity involves words and not his own emotions, for instance. He's, he's a Bible guy. You know how I said that earlier, um, I, I earlier I said that deconstruction is really just destruction. Another way to talk about deconstruction would be disobedience. So in Matthew 7, Jesus says this, and it sounds just like deconstruction and destruction and so forth. In, verse, in Matthew, 27, verse 20, uh, Matthew 7, verse 24, it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The thing I'm always fond of pointing out to folks about this text is a storm's coming for every house. Peter, you know, turns out he kind of just had a respect for God's word. Uh, one of the things to watch out for with the deconstruction and the word thing is, is that there tends to be a deconstruction of Jesus's words as the red letter words, those matter, and Paul's don't, or Paul's are wrong, or they're different, or a deconstruction between the Old Testament God, the New Testament God, so on. That is, that is again, there's a deconstruction before the deconstruction, and one of the most common is, I begin to value the words of Jesus in the Gospels over the words of Jesus in Ephesians or Romans 1, because they're all the words of Jesus. The whole thing is the word of God breathed out by God, inspired by God, and useful to the man of God. So one of the pre-deconstructions is this pitting of the word against the word, and you could see that warning sign coming when someone says, well, Jesus never said anything about, I mean, I can set my clock. When someone says that, Jesus never said anything about, what, if what they mean is Paul did, but Jesus didn't, I can set a timer in a year this person, unless they repent of that view in particular, will have walked away. Because they're already doing it. They're already walking away. Number three, again, out of possibly hundreds of ideas. Number three, Peter has companions in the same position. From studying that I did on deconstruction, I believe the word, I believe the word we, in Peter's answer, in verse 68-69, is actually a pretty important word. One of the things you'll see in deconstruction stories is an abandonment of, of relationship and open vulnerability with fellow believers onto blogs, onto videos of people who have made shipwreck of their faith. And as Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I think one of the many keys we see here in Peter's answer is that he has chosen to walk with a group of people who have also identified Jesus as uniquely the possessor of the words that lead to eternal life. So another deconstruction you can begin to see that precedes the big deconstruction is a deconstruction of Christian company. It's a deconstruction of being with the people of God. It's a deconstruction of Christian fellowship. And I think we're just built, the Bible just seems to say over and over again that we're built to be we confessing as we. And sometimes my individual confession is exceedingly weak, uncertain, and I've got people on either side of me who are a little bit more certain, and I need that. Very often, deconstructors will talk about how they were in environments where they felt like asking questions about their faith was discouraged. It's like, I guess that's possible, but what's more likely is you were either in an environment full of fellow Pharisees, which you yourself were and didn't realize it, or 
you were in an environment full of people who were happy to talk about their weaknesses and fears, and you love your self-opinion. You love appearing as if you have all the answers. And it felt potentially disastrous to your own self-identity to just say, I have questions, I have doubts. And it wasn't about the people around you at all. It was about your own view of yourself. So those are three kind of human-level things we can be about to avoid deconstruction. But there's one big one, and that's found in verse 70. Peter gives his answer, his excellent answer in 68 through 69. Where will I go? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then the answer, the number one reason why people do or do not fall away is found in verse 70. Jesus says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you? The 12. And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Here's, here's the number one reason why you will or will not succumb to deconstruction. If you are his, no one will snatch you out of, your hand, out of his hand. Now, let's be clear about something. If you are his, you're not a presumptuous slacker who uses theological bumper stickers to avoid the hard work of belief. If you are not his, you will lean into verbiage to delay what Peter says in 2 Peter, growing in virtue. See, at the beginning of our text, Jesus says point blank, believing in me is work. No assurance that you are chosen by him should equate in taking your hands off the wheel and ceasing to do the work that Jesus describes as real work, which is to believe in him. All we're saying is, is that when you go to do that work, as Lisa described as she was sharing, when you go to do that work, you will find him working in you. You will find his hand at the wheel. You'll, you'll find, as Paul describes, this capacity to work hard and then to realize it's not me who is working, but him who is in me that's working. One of the other kind of ideas to draw from verse 70 is just to help us all not be discouraged by this phenomenon of deconstruction. And I think that's one of the things, reasons why Jesus felt the necessity to tell these folks after saying, I chose you, to say, but not all of you are chosen for the same thing. One of you is a devil. Why did Jesus feel the need to say that? Because one of the things that happens when we walk with other Christians who then fall away or people who we thought were Christians who fall away is we begin to doubt the, the capacity of God to keep his people. Like, wait a minute, like, so-and-so fell away. Like, is God, is, does the choice of God stand? Does it stay? Did, are we really held by it? Is God's sovereignty really the assurance that people claim it to be? And so Jesus has to make it clear in announcing the choosing of the 12, that doesn't mean the same thing for everybody. It just means I'm in control of everything. It doesn't mean everybody has the same outcome. And it doesn't mean 
that everybody's going to wind up where we hope they do. It just means I'm totally in control of the whole thing. Um, there's this theme that starts all the way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and all the way through until Revelation in which it ceased dramatically and wonderfully. And that theme is there's always a snake in the garden. There's always a brother with the heart of a betrayer. There's always a Judas among the 12. There's always, this is part of God's story. This is how he has written the story. Why has he done that? Why has God allowed the story to be written that way? Well, I think the big takeaway for us today would be God has allowed the story to be written that way so that we all understand it is not by our human works that we remain. The choice of God is the only sure thing. And so it's important for God to have this person who is but is not, who looks like but is not, the wheat among the tares. It's important for God to have that element because ultimately God's about giving himself glory and proclaiming that he alone is the provider of salvation and the grower of faith. Now, there was this moment, let's imagine that Peter and Judas were called to follow Jesus on the same day. It's probably not how it happened, but just to simplify there's this moment where, you know, Peter's a new rep recruit to follow Jesus and Judas is a new recruit to follow Jesus. And at that moment, they were very alike, I think. Judas wasn't full of the devil yet. He wasn't stealing money from Jesus yet. They just show up and they look similar. But then over time, what God had chosen them for begins to be more and more evident and to eventually it becomes fully evident. And so by no means be discouraged by uh, Christian deconstruction as if somehow God is not keeping his people. Not at all. This is actually part of his plan always. And by the way, that might be the hard word for you that you find difficult to accept is that God is, 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 is as much in the choice of Judas as he is in the choice of Peter. Wrestle with it. Trust him. But that's how Jesus ends this particular portion of Scripture. Well, for communion today, I think we could just go back into this chapter and be reminded, say, for instance, in John 6, 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is, chosen in the pro it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then John 6, 54, Jesus says, 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and then I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we know that when Jesus says that, he is speaking in metaphor. Later, he says, he takes, he takes the bread and the cup and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And we know he's speaking in metaphor. So we can come to the table right now and say, this is your gift to me, a symbol of the belief you have allowed me to possess in which I trust you and you alone for my entrance into eternal life. So would you come today, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you come and participate in the Lord's table, considering this to be the way he's confirming to you, yeah, yeah, I really am that good. I really do offer myself to you. I really have died for your sins. Come and partake the Lord's table today.